just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plenty of news to talk about this week, and I'll talk about it with Nick and Ray next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 10th. It's show number 43 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday news and notes edition for you. We'll have extended Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including injuries in San Francisco, Miami, and Los Angeles, a possible closer change in St. Louis, and the mystery of Tukey Toussaint, as well as other big National League news. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including G-Man Choi's return, Garrett Cole's injury, the Seattle bullpen now that Diego Castillo's back, the Yankees bullpen now that Jonathan Loezaga is out, and more American League news. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Atlanta right-handed starter Spencer Strider. What a name. He should be a big leaguer just on the name alone. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about a brainstorm I had about managing my American League-only pitching staff. It's another big Friday news and notes edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're going to talk some baseball news. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Miami, where they put infielder Jesus Aguilar on the 10-day IL Wednesday because of some knee inflammation. The team also recalled infielder Luan Diaz from AAA. Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Aguilar was something of a revelation this year. 22 homers, 93 RBIs, 261 batting average in 449 at-bats. Pretty good skills. What's the prognosis here, and who gets the playing time as long as Aguilar's on the shelf? Well, the prognosis is not great, not from a medical standpoint, but because the Marlins don't have much reason to risk bringing Aguilar back to run out a season that's long over for them. Looks like uh, Lewin Diaz will get a long look while Aguilar is out. He's been shuttling between Miami and Jacksonville all season, but he only had 37 big league at-bats before his recall on Thursday. Billert says that fantasy and managers could do worse than rolling the dice on Diaz. He has a career 180 XBA, but three homers in his 37 at-bats in 2021. Before the season, Diaz was ranked as the ninth best Marlin prospect with an 8C rating, a solid regular, so clearly some potential. Uh, Joe Panic could also see playing time at first base, but we know what he brought, brings to the table, and that isn't very much. 
I have Joe Panic on a team, and yes, saying that he doesn't bring much to the table might be understating the case. He really is not an offensive contributor at all, even to the limited extent that he was in past years. Uh, let's move on to San Francisco, clear across the continent. The Giants put outfielder Alex Dickerson on the 10-day IL with a right hamstring strain. Jock Thompson covering it for playing time today at Baseball HQ. San Francisco had a pretty crowded outfield anyway, Nick, so how does the playing time get redistributed? Well, Chris Bryant's playing a lot of third base. Austin Slater uh, is out with a concussion at the moment. Now Dickerson's injury. Playing time looks promising for Mauricio Dubon and Steven Dugar. Dugar was in center field versus L.A. on Sunday. The hottest outfielder in San Francisco is Darren Ruff. 987 OPS, over 122nd half at bats. Uh, Lamont Wade, 8846 OPS, over 256 at bats, would also seem to be a big playing time winner here. Uh, but Right-handed Ruff was not in the starting lineup versus Walker Buehler on Sunday. Reminder that San Francisco still has significant depth and versatility, and manager Gabe Kapler will still frequently play the matchup. So uh, it's really hard to tell how much who's going to get playing time and how much they're going to get. And as a Ruff owner, he plays almost all the time against a left-handed pitcher, once in a while against a right-handed pitcher, but I can't predict from day to day when he's going to be in the lineup. That's the problem, isn't it? You just can't predict from day to day who's going to be in the lineup. And while we admire teams like San Francisco, Nick, I think that uh, that do well at moving people around and having multiple position eligibility players and all of that kind of stuff. Like Tampa in the American League, San Francisco teams to be seems to be taking a, a bit of a page out of their book, and it's probably pretty good for their actual baseball, but it's not so good for us in fantasy trying to figure out where the playing time is. I checked the depth charts at BaseballHQ.com for San Francisco, and we have, looks like, eight guys ticketed for at least some playing time in the outfield, and that's giving Alex Dickerson still 25% of the of the at-bats that are left among the three slots. So, gosh, anybody could pick up time here, lose time, but I think you're right. I think it's going to be a lot of matchups based, and that makes it really hard to roster anybody on that team, except for, uh, in the outfield at least, except for Chris Bryant and probably Mike Yastrzemski. The rest of them are going to be part-time players. Yeah, they are, and, you know, and they're good part-time players. That's the that's the heck of it from a fantasy viewpoint. I wish I could just say whoever plays in the third outfield spot for San Francisco, I want to put them in, you know. But unfortunately, we can't do that. That's right. That would actually be a pretty interesting format, wouldn't it? Instead of drafting the uh, the actual player, you draft the slot that the player is in. So if he's not playing, you get whoever's in the slot that day, which would mean that you know, on occasion, a guy would get some stats for your team, and then when he moved to the outfield, he might get stats for some other team. There you go. <laughs> Maybe we just invented something We here. just invented a game, yeah. It was a quick, get a copyright or a trademark or whatever it is in patent. or <laughs> get some uh, intellectual property protection anyway. Also in San Francisco, Nick, the Giants shut down grizzled veteran Johnny Cueto again. He's got that bulky elbow. Jock Thompson for playing time today. Could this be an opportunity for the even more grizzly veteran Scott Casimir? Oh, yes, it could. The club is reportedly considering another call-up for Scott Casimir, who has seven inning pitch, five earned runs to date. Uh, Quaida was made just two starts since August the 8th and is now on his second IL stint since then with elbow issues. So this news seems to make him a very poor fantasy bet down the stretch. Uh, Alex Wood has been out since late August with a COVID diagnosis, leaving the Giants with just three healthy starting pitchers over the near term. Logan Webb, Kevin Gossman, and Anthony, Anthony DeSclefani. The off-day Thursday will let Gossman and Webb pitch on normal rest, but there are some bullpen games in San Francisco's immediate future. 
whether Casimir fits into that scenario or something, we'll have to wait and see. And again, Nick, I went and looked at San Francisco's depth chart as far as the pitching goes, and uh, we have Scott Casimir ticketed for about 2% of the starting pitcher innings, and that means one of two things. Either he's only going to get a start or two at most, or he's going to start but only pitch limited innings in that kind of opener role. Yes, right. So it's one of those things where uh, a start or two might be all right, but limited innings in an opening role can be very uh, uh, risky for a fantasy team at this point. Yeah, risky. And, you know, it seems like it's more downside than upside because if he gets in there and throws some decent innings, there's still not enough to get a pile of strikeouts and he's not going to get any wins if he doesn't get to the five innings, which seems unlikely. And there's all kinds of downside. If he's in there for three innings and gives up six runs, now you're wearing the uh, the earned runs and the, and the whip hit on limited innings that you don't want that. Uh, updating a previous report, staying in the West, uh, Los Angeles outfielder A.J. Pollock having a terrific year. A grade two hamstring strain, going to be out for at least two weeks, according to the manager. Uh, Jock Thompson for playing time today. This is bad timing, as I say, for Pollock. A great year. Who gains? Pollock has been terrific. $21 5 by 5 value, 16 home runs, 9 stolen bases, 297 batting average, and 354 at-bats. Everyone in the current L.A. outfield gets a slight playing time bump, but the most notable winner here could be Cody Bellinger, who had been demoted to a strong side platoon in what's been for him an injury riddled in a very struggling season. Bellinger has been as awful as Pollock has been great. Batting average 161, nine home runs, 280 at-bats, two stolen bases. Who would have imagined a top-round stud would generate negative 5 by 5 value, but Bellinger has. That said, there might be opportunity. Bellinger's hit rate has been a woeful 19%, but it was up around it was up around 30%. The BA would be in the 250s, and counting stats might be a little more presentable. Keep an eye on the LA lineups over the next few days to figure out how manager Dave Roberts might deploy his outfield. Uh, look for any kind of surprises or some some fantasy gain that might happen as we watch how he's going to play this. L.A. also got some good news and some better news in the rotation. First, the good news, they activated right-hander Tony Gonsolin off the I.L., and he actually got a start on Thursday night against St. Louis. The better news, Clayton Kershaw, who's on the I.L. with elbow and forearm issues, pitched three innings in AAA Wednesday night on a rehab start, and they've penciled him in to start Monday against Arizona. How does the Los Angeles rotation shape up as we head down the stretch in what is a very tight National League West race? Gonsolin looked okay at his start on Thursday, tossing three innings, one run ball, three hits, two walks, three strikeouts. For now, we think he'll get some starts, but still isn't likely to go deep into them. So don't count on many wins or strikeouts from Gonsolin. Getting Kershaw back is obviously excellent news. Uh, L.A. has been relying on bullpen games, so the returns of Gonsolin and Kershaw let us trim some fringe innings projections. Yeah, I checked the depth chart, and they did trim out a lot of the guys who were in there for 1% or 2% of the innings. And they seem to have pushed David Price down from the fifth slot to the sixth slot, which would put him in that kind of spot starter swingman role as well. So if you have a David Price on your roster, you might want to start looking around for alternatives, should any alternatives pop up in your free agent pool or what have you. And in fact, Price has not been all that good. I mean, he's been getting, getting uh, he's been working almost as a starter, three, four innings pitched, uh, giving up an earned run here and there, never quite getting more walks than strikeouts. Uh, I finally dropped him in the league last week because things did not look that good for him with these new additions to the rotation. So uh, take a long look at David Price if you have him on your roster. 
St. Louis activated right-handed reliever Andrew Miller from the IL. He had a blister on his toe. Uh, Phil Hertz covers the story for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com, and Phil says this former closer might be in the mix for some saves down the stretch in St. Louis. Miller returned to action on Labor Day with a shutout inning against the Dodgers. Hasn't been used in this season for any save situation, but has had at least one save in every season since 2014, so that's something. Uh, Alex Reyes has been struggling. A 7.56 ERA in his last nine games, 1.56 whip, and an OPS against, against of 9.82. Worst of all, four blown saves, three losses in that span. So it would not be a shock to see Miller get a save or two before the season ends. It wouldn't be a shock. You know, the story about this uh, is Giovanni Gallegos is now pretty firmly entrenched at the head of what looks still like a bit of a committee with Reyes and uh, maybe Luis Garcia. But Andrew Miller has a lot of experience in late game situations. And at one point, I remember this is going back a few years, Nick, and I'm sure you remember as well that Andrew Miller back in the day was one of the most effective relief pitchers in all of baseball. Even though he wasn't closing games, he was earning big value because of his excellent ratios and picking up a lot of vulture wins. Yes, very definitely. Andrew Miller could do some real positive things for a fantasy lineup that's in, in tight pitching situation over these last three weeks. In Philadelphia, the Phillies announced that right-hander Zach Eflin had surgery to repair a torn patellar tendon in his right knee. Phil Hertz covering the story for playing time today. This looks like the end of Eflin's season. What happens to his spot in the Philly rotation? Yeah, he's definitely through for 2021. Expected to require six to eight months to recover from the injury. And uh, our team analysts have scrubbed all of his remaining innings. So fantasy managers who were still hoping to get a starter two from Eflin this year are going to need to look somewhere else. And Phillips warns that managers in keeper leagues also need to be aware of the possibility that he won't be ready for 2022 opening day. Meanwhile, in the rotation, the team analysts at Baseball HQ have given Matt Morris some innings and pushed Ranger Suarez up into the fourth slot. Of the two, Suarez is the more interesting. Uh, XERA is in the low threes, a whip barely over one. Uh, while Morris' XERA is in the mid fives, lower than a 6.3 actual ERA, a whip is 1.6. Yeah, not a lot of good news there for Philadelphia, I suppose. Although Ranger Suarez has been a bit of a, a find. You know, he, originally people thought to grab him up because he was going to get the closer role in Philadelphia, but when the injury started to hit the rotation, they moved him there, and he continued to do well. But I know a lot of people, and me included, actually ended up dropping him for the uh, because he, he lost the closer role, and you think, well, if he's not closing games, I don't need him. But he turned out to be pretty good as a, as a starter as well, as you mentioned, that ERA in the mid-three certainly plays. I noticed that in the NFBC, Suarez is 100% rostered, and Moore is 0% rostered, at least in my league and, and other leagues. So if you believe in the wisdom of the crowds, I guess stay away from Matt Moore, not that you probably needed that advice. Moving ahead, the Colorado Rockies have moved left-hander Austin Gomber to the 60-day IL with a back issue. Remember, Nick, earlier in the season we were making fun of people being gomberized and then he came back and he was actually really good after he uh, after he came back from uh, an earlier injury this ends gomber's 2021 season but we weren't expecting much more so what's the upshot here colorado recalled right-handed pitcher ryan feltner double a and also op option right-handed pitcher antonio santos to triple a uh, chichi gondala should get some starts as colorado plays out the string but the guy to watch is feltner you know, I did watch Feltner versus Atlanta at Coors, and what I saw was a guy getting knocked around for six runs in two and two-thirds innings. What's uh, the a source of excitement at Baseball HQ? 
Yes, there certainly could be some hard knocks this season, but Dynasty and Keeper League managers should keep their eyes open here. Feltner is a legitimate starting pitcher prospect who could get some opportunities down the stretch. He's never pitched above double A, but he's been durable. Uh, upped his prospect status with an impressive showing in the 2020 Instructional League, showing a smoother, cleaner delivery while keeping his 93 to 96 mile per hour velocity. And he continued to surge this season in 2021, posting a 2.62 ERA, 3.3 walks per nine, 10.2 strikeouts per nine, and 20 starts between high and double A. He has dominated at times with a fastball slider combination. A fading changeup gives him a third solid offering. Not only does he rack up strikeouts, but he generally keeps the ball on the ground, which is, of course, a good thing in Coors. Control comes and goes, but then much better this year. If he can maintain his fastball command, continue to improve consistency in a slider, this guy could be a real sleeper. Especially, as you said, for keeper leagues, dynasty leagues, this is the kind of opportunity that sometimes strikes near the end of a season where you can uh, roster a guy on the cheap, depending on your league rules, you know, pay a, a minimum fab bid or whatever your waiver price is, and then all of a sudden you have a pitcher for next year. The only caveat, of course, is any time the next year is going to have a lot of starts in Coors Field, you have to be a little bit worried. Uh, in Atlanta, right-hander Tuki Toussaint has been pretty good since returning from the IL. Eight starts, three wins, a 419 ERA, 121 whip, uh, 15 walks and 40 strikeouts. Uh, it's a small sample of innings, Nick, but he's also flashing the best skills of his four-year MLB career with a 92 base performance value. But... In his Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting article this week, Alain de Leonardis suggests Toussaint might not be long for the Atlanta rotation. With the team in the chase for the National League East title, why would they not want to have Tuki Toussaint on the mound? Well, Tuki Toussaint has certainly been an interesting pitcher. I have him on a roster, and I, I am now having to make decisions about him. Um, he was very good in his first two or three starts, has showed good skill. Improved control, career best uh, 8% walk rate, 60% uh, first pitch strike rate, improved ground ball rate, career best 48%, but also some skills decline. Uh, offset drop, drops in velocity, career low velocity, 92.7 mile per hour, and dominance, career low 22% strikeout rate, 10.5% swinging strikes. The real issue is he's been hit very hard, 92. Two average exit velocity, 49.6 hard hit percentage, both in the bottom 1% of the league. He's abandoned his four-seamer in favor of a sinker, 49% usage of the sinker, and that gets pounded. 310 XBA, 526 expected slugging, 91.4 exit velocity on that sinker. His splitter, which he's used 21.4% of the time, has also been too hittable. 93.3 exit velocity. Uh, 13% launch angle, 415 slugging. And if it wasn't for his effective curveball, he really would be toast. And while his command has improved, command is still an issue. Control has improved, but command is still an issue. Uh, many middle-middle sinkers, elevated curves, uh, splitters that split all over the place. He struggled in his last start, giving up six hits, five runs, four earned, and just three innings pitched. Uh, and as of this past, that was his, his actually his second last start. And as of Tuesday, Atlanta had not announced a Wednesday starter for his slot. They did start him at home against Washington, went just three innings, 62 pitches, allowed two earned runs, one hit, and an unsightly four walks. The, the, the issue for me is, as we're looking at, at Toussaint, is if you've got him on a fantasy roster and he goes three innings pitch, 
gives up more walks than strikeouts, and there's a possibility that he could get blown up, how valuable is that? It doesn't sound valuable at all. You're exactly right. And and the worry at this stage of the game, as you said, is what if he throws another one of these three-inning, multiple-earned runs kind of outings? And uh, I know that one of the runs was unearned, but typically the reason it's unearned is because there was an error somewhere in the in the field during the inning, but he still gave up the the uh, the hits that moved that guy along. So I don't know. This this sounds pretty grim. Uh, who gets the slot if Toussaint is indeed pulled from the rotation? Toussaint's main competition for that slot is Drew Smiley, a left-handed pitcher. He's posted similar overall skills, uh, 91 BPV, 14% strikeout minus walk, while suffering through a very tough August, 6.08 ERA in August. The difference is that his poor results rely his best month skills-wide, 155 BPB in August, 14.2 swinging strike rate, got sabotaged by a very unfortunate 43% home run per fly rate. Both pitchers demonstrated similar overall skills. Smiley has better swing and miss stuff right now, as well as the longer track record. If he's available in your league, he could be a worthwhile addition for the stretch run, especially with the Braves starting a nine-game homestand against Washington, Miami, and Colorado. One of those competitions, you know, Toussaint versus Smiley, where I'm not even sure you want the winner. Yeah, I'm not sure you do either. I think at this point, I would be looking elsewhere. Smiley, for me, has been very volatile this season. There are times when he's got good results. There are times when he's gotten bad results. Uh, I just don't, I don't think it's worth the risk. Finally, Nick, in this week's speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looks at some post-hype prospects who could be sleepers in 2022. One of the National League names on Ryan's list is Los Angeles second baseman Gavin Lux, a can't-miss prospect who so far in his big league career has missed. What's the story with Gavin Lux? 9B prospect rating. Top five spot in the 2020 HQ100 made Gavin Lux a relatively sure thing in prospect circles, but it it just hasn't worked out yet. Uh, Lux finally got a crack at everyday playing time this year, but he slashed just 221, 302, 340 in a season that can somewhat be written off by injury. He had general wrist soreness in April that later turned into an IL stint, and then he returned to the IL with a hamstring spring in August. Excuses may be, and Lux will need a strong spring if he wants to secure everyday playing time, but it's really premature to write off a 23-year-old of Lux's pedigree this early in his career. I was looking at Gavin Lux's track record at BaseballHQ.com's player link pages and listened to these expected batting averages over his admittedly short and uh, not very at-bat-filled uh, track record so far. His XBA is 238, 216, 229 this year. 228 was what we're projecting. Those are not the kind of numbers that fill you full of hope. No, they're not. But I think, you know, at 23 years old, You've got to look at uh, the fact that he started the year with an injury. Uh, may have been more serious, in fact, than than uh, uh, ultimately we, we thought it was. I mean, he's, this is a guy, a young guy who wants to get a crack in the lineup. And he may not have told the, uh, the managers everything about what this soreness was and how much it was affecting his ability to swing the bat. So, uh, you know, he might be giving, giving him a mulligan for this year and certainly don't uh, dismiss Gavin Lux, I would say, yet. Uh, too much prospect pedigree there. And as we know, it takes uh, sometimes takes prospects a long time to really shine. 
Ryan Bloomfield also looked at Miami left-handed starter Jesus Lazardo, of course, traded over from Oakland where he was bad. 687 ERA, 163 whip in 38 innings, and he got to Miami. He's even worse. Uh, 715 ERA, 168 whip in 34 innings. Why is Ryan Bloomfield optimistic given these fairly horrible numbers? Yeah, control has been the main issue for the 23-year-old. 11% uh, ball rate, 39%, 11% walk rate, 39% ball rate, though he's shown positive flashes if you really squint at them. Posted a, a, a PQS 4 versus Cincinnati on August 29th. Six inning pitch, one hit, one walk, nine strikeouts. That's the kind of guy you want in your roster. Misses bats with two plus secondary pitches. 27% swinging strikes on his curveball. 17% on his changeup. So we're generally looking for upside in the deep end of a starting pitcher pool. And uh, even though we had a dud this year with Rosardo, Looking ahead to next year, the guy is going to be down, down, down to the bottom of the draft pool and certainly has a lot of potential upside still. I had to laugh when I read uh, Ryan's comment about the uh, PQS4 that he threw against Cincinnati. I mean, it was a really good outing, don't get me wrong, and Cincinnati's a pretty good hitting club. But uh, since he got traded over to Miami, listen to these PQS scores. This is the entire run. 2 one 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 four. One, two. <laughs> one of these yeah. things is not like the other. <laughs> right. It's, it's one of those things that you look at and you go, because I, I did a write-up on it this week in, in, in the pitching matchups thing, and said, well, you know, that PQS4 is really interesting, but can he get there again? And it's one of those things you, you probably don't want to put uh, any money on it at this point. I certainly don't, but I have to tell you, this is exactly the kind of situation that I think I will be interested in next year. If I see in the early going that Luzardo is going, you know, in the in the 20th round or in the reserve rounds or not being drafted at all, those kind of situations, I think Miami's pretty good with their pitchers. Uh, Luzardo's having an off year, clearly. Maybe there's an injury thing that'll clear up with some rest and rehab in the off season. This is the kind of intriguing possibility that I think all fantasy managers need to be looking for. I agree with you. If this is a guy you can pick up for a buck at the end of your draft next year, uh, certainly worth it because the upside is clearly there. Uh, and if he turns out to be as bad again as he was this year, you can always drop him. You can always drop him. Boy, truer words were never spoken. Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Thanks, PD. Good to be here as always. And we're uh, running towards the end of the season. Uh, I hope to convene a round table. I should let uh, everybody know, including you, because you're in it. Uh, after the season, we'll uh, maybe get together and talk about the season uh, just passed and look ahead to 2022, especially some of the players who might have fought their way, I'm interested in your opinions, might have fought their way into the first round next year from wherever they were this year. And, of course, we're going to expect a few guys not to be in the first round next year. And uh, that kind of turnover, I think, is interesting to start thinking about. Uh, meanwhile, we have turnover in the big leagues right here, right now. Tampa activated first baseman G-Man Choi and right-hander Matt Wisler from the 10-day IL and also recalled outfielder Josh Lowe uh, from AAA. Chris Olson for Baseball HQ's playing time today feature. Who loses playing time with Choi and Wisler coming back? 
in at first base, it seems like it's Andy Diaz who gets the playing time deduction. He had been picking up sort of both sides of the platoon work or taking the good side with uh, Jordan Luplo while uh, Choi was out, but Choi comes back, gets a good half of, of the platoon, sometimes even the leadoff spot. That's, you know, Choi gets uh, some nice premium at bats there, and it's probably uh, Diaz who goes back into a third corner infielder, a little first base, a little third base, mostly against lefties kind of role. So he gets a, uh, he gets a deduction. And meanwhile, uh, we have Wisler coming back. He's one of the 13 record-breaking pitchers who've earned saves for the Rays this year. But while he was on the IL, Tampa added David Robertson, a guy with not only bullpen experience but past closing experience, and not only past closing experience but past pretty good closing experience. Yeah, and it's been a long time since Robertson was healthy, and he's going to have to demonstrate effectiveness at the big league level, but... Tampa may have stumbled on another, you know, undervalued nugget here in that, you know, small sample size, but he had had, I think the numbers were six uh, rehab appearances or get off the rust appearances in AAA. He's obviously been out for a long time and in six innings in AAA, he had 12 strikeouts. So seems like his stuff might be coming back. We'll have to check the uh, radar guns on the first couple of big league outings and see. But as you point out with the, uh, 13 Tampa relievers who have already gotten saves, they will give anybody the ball in the ninth inning. And it may very well be that by this time next week, anybody includes David Robertson. We will wait and see. But, uh, you know, stranger things have certainly happened. I looked at David Robertson's track record. Of course, he had uh, a whole bunch of saves, 73 saves for the Yankees and the White Sox. But that was back six, seven years ago. But his ratios are really terrific. Uh, had whips around one a uh, couple of times under one. 08-49 in total in 2017 for a couple of different teams. This guy can pitch. This guy's a, he's a really good pitcher, but the injury problem uh, certainly raises its ugly head. And I like what Chris Olson said. Despite strong skills, Whistler may not see a ton of save opportunities, or he may see all of them. Who really knows? <laughs> I, I, I think that's a... Uh sense of the, the frustration or f- at least fatigue that Chris has in trying to allocate the, uh, you know, the Rays saves going into, you know, month six of the season now and constantly adjusting. And I think he's come to the point where taking every active Rays reliever and assigning them 10% of the saves is probably the best thing you can do. Um, as for Robertson, I mean, it's been a long time since he was healthy slash effective. Uh, you go back to 2018 it was his last full season. He had 21 saves. I guess that was with the Phillies, right? Um, or was it not? Or did he sign with the Phillies after that? It was never really effective. Um, we don't have the team on the value here, so I forget. But it's been a while. And, you know, to put it in context of how many blocks Robertson has been around, uh, you know, of course, we had the Hall of Fame induction ceremony this week with Derek Jeter getting inducted. And if I'm not mistaken, it was David Robertson who blew the save in um, – in Jeter's last game at Yankee Stadium that allowed Jeter to come up in a tie game in the bottom of the ninth inning and get a walk-off hit. So Robertson has been around more than a few blocks, and uh, you know he's been rehabbing for seemingly Jeter's entire five-year Hall of Fame winning period. You know, I put in a bid in FAB in my Tout American League this weekend for David Robertson. It was a 
what do they call it, a, a, a bid, uh, what's the word I'm searching for, where you put in a, a conditional bid in case sure. I didn't get who I wanted. And uh, in hindsight, I kind of wish I'd bumped Robertson up a little bit. Well, I guess we'll have to see, but uh, David Robertson is not to be overlooked if you're looking for ratio help in the last couple of weeks. Mind you, it'll only be four or five innings, but depending on how your ratio categories are setting up, you know, four or five scoreless innings, four or five very low walk and hit innings could be really helpful. Uh, updating a previous report, uh, Yankees right-hander Garrett Cole was lifted from his start Tuesday against Toronto in the fourth inning. He had the hamstring tightness, and they were a little uh, concerned about that, so they took him out. What's the latest on that story? Uh, cautious optimism from Aaron Boone, who seems to think that Cole might they might have gotten Cole out early enough that he could make his next start, which I think is scheduled for Monday, the 13th. They did call up uh, Luis Hill to to be on the staff and be, I presume, set to start if Cole can't go or even needs a couple of days. The Yankees were sort of dabbling with a six-man rotation anyway, so they've they've got some options. They need to buy a couple of days for Cole next week. Uh, obviously, his owners will leave him active regardless. And But I, I think the real question becomes whether Cole starts on Monday and gets a two-start week that his owners would very much welcome or if he gets pushed back to midweek and is only a one-start guy. But uh, we'll have to stay tuned to figure that out. The Yankees called up uh, Luis Heel, who was having a pretty interesting year, 15.2 scoreless innings going in three starts in August, sent down, now called back up. And he started against the Jays, not so good. Yeah, boy, that was one of the one of the odder lines that you've that you I've seen all season. Three and a third innings, only one hit allowed, but three earned runs because he walked seven in three and a third innings and struck out six. Uh, you know, were the batters even in the batter's box, or was he just you know? And he and yet he got fourteen swinging strikes too, so he was unhittable in both the best and worst sense. I guess is the best way to put it. Control has been his issue. I I looked him up after that outing because it seemed strange to me. 43% strikeout rate over the last two full minor league seasons, but a 12% walk rate. So uh, you still have to like a 31% strikeout minus walk, but in the big leagues, you got to expect that the one strikeouts are going to go down and two that the walks are going to go up, and that seems to be exactly what has happened. Now, Baseball HQ's depth chart has... Luis Heal seventh in the rotation, so it could be that his only path to significant playing time would be an injury, and maybe Cole's that injury, but for now, we don't think so. Yeah, Cole's, Cole's injury might buy him another one-start audition, or maybe the one from the other night was the only one he gets. But, you know, the, the Yankees are, you know, obviously in the teeth of a uh, race for the wild card, and Corey Kluber's been pretty bad, too, since coming back from the DL. His outings have been short. And he's generally gotten knocked around. And in particular, it seems like his you know, pinpoint control isn't there right now. Uh, so if, if if he outpitches Kluber or gives the Yankees even some ability to think that he can give them short bursts, you know, with the expanded roster, a couple of extra pitching spots, you know, even three, three and a third innings, if he can not walk seven guys in three and a third innings might be enough to get him you know, a, a few more short starts and one or once or twice through the order sorts of thing as the Yankees move to a, uh, you know, all hands on deck for the last few weeks here. And speaking of all hands on deck, uh, they're probably down below bailing because the uh, Yankees of late have hit an iceberg and seem to be taking on a lot of water. And part of the problem has been their bullpen. 
Uh, Jonathan Loezigo was actually kind of settling things down in that bullpen over the last couple of weeks, but he's got a strained rotator cuff. He went on the 10-day IL on Sunday. He can't even throw for at least 10 days, and rotator cuff strains usually last longer than that. According to manager Aaron Boone, they've recalled Albert Abreu, a right-hander from AAA. But this shaky Yankee pen seems now to be just a little shakier. So how does it all shake out? I think it's a lot shakier. Loisaga, you know, for all of the turmoil in that Yankee bullpen, has really been a pillar and really been the you know, kind of the one constant stabilizing influence. Just a, a great year so far. A 2.25 ERA, you know, a strikeout in inning, nine wins, you know, in a multi-inning relief role, plus five saves and 17 holds if you're in a holds or half holds league. You know, just a really productive inning at, a year out of that bullpen and amid the Chapman blow-ups slash injuries and, you know, Zach Britton's late start to the season and periodic ineffectiveness after that. Chad Green's been pretty good, but in a bunch of different roles. You know, it really is going to fall on Green, I think, now to uh, to be the bridge between, uh, you know, the starters who are, as we were saying earlier, having their own struggles and Chapman because there's not a lot of help out there right now. One guy I've seen, even in my relatively deep American League-only league in the free agent pool, has been Lucas Litke, who uh, also has pitched fairly well and almost invisibly, but he's got a 274 ERA, a 113 whip. He's not walking anybody, uh, around two walks per nine and 10 strikeouts per nine. Is Lucas Litke a guy that we should be looking at down the stretch here? Yeah, he's sort of an out-of-nowhere 34-year-old lefty pitching in the majors you know, for the first time since 2015 and no real work in the majors, you know, only a handful of innings in 14 and 15. So it's really been since 2013 that we've seen him and he wasn't this good back then. So, um, you know, I, I noticed him fairly early on in the season when he seemed to be getting, uh, you know, when the Yankees bullpen was kind of a mess and he was getting some fairly high profile, high leverage work. He's actually gotten better as the year's gone on. You know, in the second half, 25 innings, seven walks of 28 strikeouts, so more than a strikeout at inning, a four-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio, uh, base performance value of 135. You know, he's been quite good, and yeah, he is probably the left-handed setup man right now in front of Chapman. You know, it's going to be Green and Lukey trying to get the ball to Chapman, I guess. Doing a really good job keeping the ball in the park as well in that uh, relatively homer-friendly stadium, and especially down the lines. Given a 40% fly balls, and a lot of them are staying in, so his uh, home run per nine rate is under one, which is something we like to see, but there seems to be a little bit of room for that to get worse, given the fact that his home run per fly ball rate is still relatively low. Yeah, and he doesn't exhibit a particularly, or any really, uh, ground ball, fly ball split. He's about level with that, so it's not like he's really throwing worm killers. And certainly in Yankee Stadium, and in this day and age of uh, balls jumping out of the park, you would certainly think he would be more prone to the long ball than what he's done so far. But again, as we said, there's only what maybe ten innings or so left for a lot of relief pitchers. Maybe not even. So uh, this is one of those situations where any reliever you pick up could really, really help you, or even 
really, really, really hurt you by giving up, as I had last night, uh, a couple of uh, relief pitchers give up two earned runs each in two-thirds of an inning or a third of an inning or something like that. So relief pitchers are a double-edged sword at this time of the year, that's for sure. Uh, one, one bad outing, you really lose a mark, and you know, there's not enough time left to work those off if they happen either. So, yeah, you read the box scores in terror at this time of year in a lot of, in a lot of senses. And I actually have only 700 innings in my pitching staff this year by design. So uh, those kind of impacts are a little bit mitigated if you have 12 or 1,300 innings because you're on a lot of starters, as most people do. But uh, for various reasons, I didn't. And so every time one of my relievers comes in, I have my fingers crossed and parts of me clenched that are uh, best left undescribed. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of that, uh, in Boston, Kiki Hernandez is finally back from the COVID list. Boy, the Red Sox have had so many uh, players go on to those uh, COVID protocols and onto the COVID IL. I don't even think Kike Hernandez was symptomatic. I don't know if he tested positive or not, but he's back. That's the key thing. In the meantime, though, Boston signed former Red Sox shortstop Jose Iglesias back to rejoin the team. So how does this shake out for Kike Hernandez's playing time? You know, there's Hernandez has a lot of versatility. We've seen him at second base in, in I think, all three outfield spots this year. Last night, and I think his first game back from the IL, he also appeared in shortstop late in the game. Obviously, the Red Sox have had holes blown in all parts of their lineup from this uh, COVID outbreak with Bogarts out and Hernandez himself out, Christian Arroyo out. So we talked last week about the uh, you know cast of AAA characters who have been holding down the middle infield. You would think that Hernandez is going to spend most of his time there, but you know with uh, the, the Darren Duran out and not no real other qualified center fielder on the roster. Hernandez is also their best defensive center fielder for the moment as well. Uh, so he may get out to the outfield. Uh, although they've been playing a lot of Verdugo in center with J.D. Martinez and Kyle Schwarber sort of tag teaming left field and DH. They like to do that at home more because they are more comfortable getting Martinez and Schwarber do left field at Fenway where they're a little bit less exposed. Uh, and then they go with kind of the better defensive outfield on the road generally. Um, as for Iglesias, he may get a few more starts until Bogarts comes back. Uh, after that, I think he disappears to the end of the bench or maybe even off the roster entirely. I think that was really just a happenstance of he got released by the Angels. He was freely available and the Sox had a short-term needed shortstop and that's going to last a couple more days, hopefully no longer than that. But, uh, you know, Iglesias is, was, was the man of the moment. And to give him his due, over the last few years, he's actually contributed at least some decent batting averages and had a 15 stolen base year back in 2018 when he was playing with Detroit. But over the last shorter span, it hasn't been quite that productive. But if you have a shortstop who's hitting 260, maybe get you a a home run or two, five, six RBIs at this time of year. If you need a replacement, you could do worse than Jose Iglesias, I think. Uh, Boston also had right-hander Hansel Robles leave a game this week. I saw him come back, though, later in the week. What's the latest on the Boston bullpen, which has been a hot mess? <laughs> it remains a hot mess. That's the latest. Uh, Robles, you know, I think I snickered at Robles last week when we were talking about the pecking order for Saves in the Red Sox bullpen with Matt Barnes also on the COVID IL and also uh, horrendously ineffective before he got COVID. 
Uh, so we talked about Adam Adovino. We talked about Garrett Whitlock. We talked about Garrett Richards. And all of those guys saw high leverage work in the last week. And so did Robles, who actually ended up getting called on for a save uh, in a 2-1 to win over the Rays on Wednesday night. You want to talk about thing, your times when you had things clenched. Uh, Hansel Robles trying to close out a one-run uh, lead in the ninth inning was a, uh, was a clenching 10 or 15 minutes for me. I'll tell you that much. I happened to watch the end of that game, and he looked okay. You know, he's a, a little shaky and not dominating the way you'd like your closer to be, but he wasn't horrible either. And meanwhile, you mentioned the Garretts, Whitlock and Richards. Richards, of course, was a starter before moving to the bullpen. He's been very effective in a bullpen role. He has. The two Garretts have formed an unlikely tag team between a converted starter and a Rule 5 pick of really being multi-inning relievers. I, I think Whitlock may have gotten a little bit overexposed in terms of workload they had you know with all of the churn and chaos we were just talking about they had started to lean on him a little more heavily and he's been getting hit a little bit more in the last week or 10 days than we had seen previously but Richards has been a revelation and I think I think it's really a case where it was his curveball if I'm not mistaken that really just got rendered completely ineffective by the loss of sticky substances back in June and whatever modicum of success Richards was having as a starter went away when the curveball turned into a junk pitch, essentially. Uh, but that reduced him to a two-pitch pitcher, and he's getting by much more effectively as a two-pitch pitcher in the bullpen, just featuring fastball slider. And for now, that's working. And if they keep him to you know two winning stints and one time through the lineup, it seems like that is a place where he can still provide some value to this team. And this team needs innings any in any form they can get them. So they're gonna they're gonna keep rotting Richards in that role as long as he's effective. Garrett Richards had a eight sixty eight OPS against as a starter. That's down to under five hundred. Four eighty three as a reliever. His skills, underlying skills look way better in that relief role as well. I mean we expect this, right? When a starter goes sure. f- from having to go through the third time and having to use more pitches as you mentioned. So uh it's a it's interesting to see uh, Garrett Richards, and I wonder how his career will advance from this point, whether people are going to realize whatever team he ends up pitching for, whether he really isn't a starter, or whether he can somehow build up that that third and fourth pitch and, and get back into a starting role. It'll be interesting to watch, I think. Uh, in Los Angeles, the Angels put outfielder Justin Upton on the 10-day IL. He's got a back problem. Nothing new there, I expect. The team recalled infielder, outfielder Kean Wong from AAA. Jock Thompson on the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What does Jock report about this Justin Upton injury and who benefits? Yeah, if you look at Justin Upton's first half, second half, or month-by-month splits, it really looks like he's probably been fighting this back problem for a while because after a pretty decent first half, you know, he hit 247 with you know 14 home runs, which is... You know, I don't want to say vintage Justin Upton, but at least a reasonable facsimile of it. Uh, you know, he's really gone in the tank in the second half. In his last uh, 95 at bats, he had hit all of a buck 26 with a 200 on base percentage. Uh, the Angels decided apparently that he would do less damage on the IL, so they've shoved him over there to rest that lumbar strain. And we, you know, they, he's got another monstrous year left on that contract. So, in the interest of trying to extract some value from him next year, I would imagine that they will not rush him back this month. So he joins Mike Trout in pretty much the same situation. Trout has been deemed unlikely to return this year. 
you know, we might see him, you know, for some token work in the, you know, the last week or two, but that seems like the best case scenario and maybe getting less likely every day. So where does that leave the Angels outfield? You know, it's just about every day it's been Brandon Marsh and Joe Adele, the, the two kids who are handling, uh, you know, two of those spots. And it really seems like Adele is picking it up a little bit in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, we've been waiting for that for a long time. I saw he had a two-homer game the other night. His contact rate is creeping upward to a respectable territory uh, after only being uh, 73% contact rate in August. That's up to 83% in September. It's only 20-something at bats, so uh, we're not going to declare victory there. But, you know, it seems like there may be, uh, you know, he may be putting the bat on the ball a little bit more, which is kind of a prerequisite for good things to happen. So, you know, that, and that leaves the third outfield spot out there, PD, after Marsh and Adele. Going to be some Phil Gosselin, going to be some Juan Lagares, primarily against left-handed pitching. Those guys will probably hold down the that third outfield spot. And you know, maybe the real hidden winner here is uh, Louie Rangifo, who is been play, who's been playing the utility role and now will get more work all around the infield. In Seattle, they activated right-hander Diego Castillo, who was on there with a shoulder problem, and a left-hander Anthony Mizowich, also from the 10-day IL, moved a bunch of pieces around. The interesting question for me here, Ray, is about uh, Castillo's role as the Mariners are really surprisingly still deeply involved in the playoff chase as we speak. They've been using Paul Sewald as their closer, and he was really running with the closer job, but Rod Truesdell at Baseball HQ's Playing Time Today report says we should expect Castillo to be back in the closer mix right away. How's that work? Yeah, that seems to be the case. And, you know, early returns seem to be that that is how Castillo is going to get used. He's got plugged right into a save op on his first appearance back. But then uh, he also came into, I think, a tie game in the eighth inning the other night. So kind of quietly, the Mariners, you know, I don't want to equate them with the raise in terms of flexibility in how they use their relievers. But I count eight guys on the roster who have a save right now, if I'm doing the math correctly. Plus, you know, Kendall Graven was the closer and got traded away. So that's nine. Uh, I mean, Seawald has eight saves. Stecken Ryder has seven. Uh, Rafael Montero had seven before he got traded. Graveman had 10. Castillo's here now, and he brings over you know, his saves from the Rays in addition to uh, the couple he's picked up here. So it's a mix and match situation. And I, it's, you know, and, and the Mariners are also, you know, in the wild card mix and winning a lot of games. So another situation where, you know, they're, they seem to be a club that tries to avoid using relievers on back back days. And it might be Seawall tonight and Steckin Rider tomorrow or Steckin Rider in the eighth and Castillo in the ninth tonight. And then, you know, two out of the three the next night, it's, uh, you know, they've shown a willingness to spread the saves around. And even with Castillo back, you know, he might be the lead horse, but he's not the exclusive horse. And finally, Ray, we have a kind of a rule at baseballhq.com that we talk about every year. It's in the glossary of, of uh, terms or whatever it is called at uh, Baseball Forecaster. And it's called the 10 Steps to Prospect Success or something. And it usually starts with, I think they call it the Alex Rodriguez pattern or the Alex Rodriguez path. Much hyped prospect comes up, fails, uh, goes back down, works his way back up to the minors and 
maybe cycles through that process a couple of times and ends up being a really big star. And Ryan Bloomfield in the speculator column looked at the situation with this year's highly touted prospects. He he noted that there was a number of them as we came into 2021 after seeing guys like Acuna and Soto in 2018, Tatis and Bichette and so forth in 2019. So he looked at a bunch of guys who have had their debuts this year and maybe not gone so well along that Alex Rodriguez path. And the first name on his list, uh, we were just talking about Seattle, is Jared Kelenic, who came up with trumpets uh, blowing and ended up with a Bronx cheer. Yeah, there's sort of a global issue here that, you know, before we get into Kelenic, is probably worth exploring a little bit. You know, we've, we've touched on it a couple of times on the show this year, Patrick, you know, in context of Kelenic, in context of his teammate Logan Gilbert comes to mind, Daniel Lynch as well, that it seems like the gap between AAA and the majors is just enormous right now. You know, you think about what Kelnick just as a as a talking point went through, you know, he smashed the minors for April and half of May until he got called up and then came up and completely flailed for a month or so and got sent back down because it was clear that he was just overmatched and needed to clear his head or get back to fundamentals or whatever they wanted him to do. And he went back to the minors and it was, it was very productive again. And they called him up again in you know, late summer. I think it was the beginning of August with, you know, some confidence that, you know, he had cleared his head, gotten back to what he does well and things would go better this time. And they really haven't. And that's not to say that the, sh- you know, as Ryan correctly points out in the article, Kelnick's 21. We've seen plenty of guys struggle for their first 250 at bats in the majors. There are, I was looking at Kelnick's numbers this morning. There are some tiny hints that maybe things are getting a little bit better in September. He's making a little more contact, et cetera. So maybe he's figuring it out. And, you know, the the past failures of 2021 will not bear major impact on 2022. But it's been a real struggle. And that's for a premium, premium prospect, which is just to show how hard, you know, how hard this last step on the ladder has become. And whether some of that has to do with the lack of a 2020 minor league season or the differences in gameplay and the ball and what have you between AAA and the majors this year, you know, I, 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 I can't attribute root causes across those things. We're just seeing the effect. It's really it's, it, that that last step on the ladder is just super high right now. I think the impact of the absence of a 2020 minor league season is to my thinking has to be the clear main factor in the difficulty that a lot of prospects have had in making the transition from AAA to the big leagues. They just didn't get that year of seasoning, and it must have created a lot of rust. I know they were playing games in the in the, the, the special camp or whatever they called it and whacking the ball around, but it's not the same thing as playing competitive baseball, especially against a bunch of guys who are trying to make their way to the major leagues by getting you out. And as a result, I think guys like Kalanick maybe just lost that bit of momentum more than anything, and I hate to assign narratives to these kinds of problems, but I think when you say that, Ray, I think you're exactly right. But when you get to a guy like Alex Kirilov, the problem is somewhat different. Yeah, Kirilov's you know, a story as old as time. He just can't stay healthy, right? Um, you know, He was looking somewhat productive in early returns in Minnesota, but, uh, you know, we, we took a look at him in June in a uh, Facts and Fuchs first impressions kind of take. Um, and the power hadn't really translated. 
but we thought that might that might have something to do with sprained wrist he was already recovering from at that point that he had suffered in the majors in early May. But that sprain ended up being the story of his season because that later got diagnosed as being a partial tear, which of course all sprains tears, so no real surprise there. But it ended up needing surgery, which I think was the surprising part. They didn't realize that when he first got hurt. So he got shut down in July for the surgery, and now it remains to be seen what he looks like coming into 2022. And now you really got to, you know, getting back to your previous point, PD, now for a guy like this who didn't get the work in that we wanted due to injury in 2021, on top of the loss 2020, now you put Alex Kirilov in a spot where he comes to camp in March 2022, and he's gotten, I don't know what the exact number is, I don't have it in front of me, but 150 competitive at-bats in two years. I mean, that's not what you want from a prospect development point of view. And just like we're seeing all these guys struggle to shake the rust off and try to make up for lost development time this year. Kirillov is now that much further behind the curve next year. Ryan also pointed to Vidal Bruhan of Tampa, infielder, outfielder, as a post-hype prospect for the future. We've only seen him in the majors, he says, like 26 at-bats, I think he wrote down, and didn't really fare that well, went down to the minors and hasn't fared well there either. But Vidal Bruhan has a lot of skill, and that could mark him as a dark horse for 2022 drafts. 100%. And even with the kind of struggles he had in the minors this year, let alone the 26 major major league at-bats that are irrelevant, you know, I I think one thing that we always do, or I always do, maybe we don't all do it enough when evaluating these prospects is to put them in their organizational context. And it's not 100% clear how Bruhan is going to fit into a very crowded Rays lineup when he's ready. It's also not clear after the struggles he's had this year when the Rays will deem him ready. But I think we, at this point, we have to express some confidence in the Rays as a development organization that they will get a get him straightened out and b know when the right time is to call him up. Uh, you know, I don't want to just equate him to Wander Franco because they're teammates, but Franco is quite literally the only guy on this list who has delivered on his prospect expectations in his first go-round. And there was a lot of hand-wringing along the way about why did they call up Ruan before Franco, Taylor Walls before both of them, all of those sorts of things. But we, I think we just have to just stipulate that the Rays know what they're doing and we need to put some faith in that. I always put faith in the Rays. I, I really like what they do down there. And uh, as you said, that could be a double-edged sword too because not only are they going to be pretty good at determining when Vidal Bruhan comes up, which is a plus. They also are going to have, you know, 72 guys vying for 25 spots and all of them are going to be pretty skilled because they're really good at this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden Vidal Bruhan, despite his skills, might just find it hard to get playing time or find himself in platoon splits or a utility role of some kind and just hard to find the playing time that you need to be a real significant fantasy contributor, even if you have all the skill in the world. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if there's one thing that characterizes the Rays from, you know, the common thread from the 13 guys getting saves to this raft of prospects they have coming up in the infield to the the mix and match parts they have in the Yandy Diaz and G-Man Choi's and all those guys, I, I think the common thread is redundancy, right? They never put themselves in a spot where, okay, we're plugging prospect X, be it Brujan or Franco or whatever, whoever into this position and we're going to sink or swim with them. They put them in when they think they're ready, 
But if it turns out that they're not ready or if they get hurt, there's always a next man up, and they're they're about six deep in next man next men up organizationally at every position. So when your chance comes, they will give you your chance, but you're never they're never working without a net. You also mentioned something else that caught my ear, which is the fact that uh, Wander Franco has been so successful among the guys on the list of top prospects that were the uh, recruiting pool for Ryan's uh, column. There's a lot of guys on here who actually have done really well who, who are on the prospect list. Ryan Mountcastle in Baltimore, 25 home runs in county. He's hitting 265. Uh, Randy Rosarena also in Tampa, 275, 19 homers, 13 bags. So there are guys who have succeeded, but I think the critical thing is they weren't really rookies. These are guys who had some extensive yeah. seasoning in the major leagues last year and really seem to have applied that opportunity to develop at the big league level and really turned it into something in this year, the guys I think we have to worry about are going to be the players who are qualified as rookies and really are rookies based on their actual experience. That's exactly right. You can sort these guys into two buckets. And when I say Franco is success, the success story, you're right. It's a very different thing between Franco, who spent – last summer at the alternate site versus a Rosarena who was practically the postseason MVP and got, you know, had a massive September, a massive October. And sure, he was categorically a rookie, but to say that he was facing the same challenges this year as a Wander Franco when he entered, entered the season is you know, really just apples and oranges. One more outfielder to talk about in this column, Leody Tavares in uh in Texas, had a pretty interesting rookie debut in 2020, uh, 120 at-bats or so, $11 of fantasy value, hit some homers, stole some bags. Everybody was excited about Leody Tavares, and it just didn't work. It did not work, but it seems like it might be working now. Uh, you know, it, it's been a while since that, uh, you know, it seems like that rookie debut last year, and then, you know, he got a fairly quick send-down this year when he got off to a slow start, but... And, you know, when you strike out 23 times at 46 at-bats early in the season, sure, you earn that demotion, no question about it. Uh, but he fared pretty well in AAA, made some more contact, and really seems like he's triangulated what kind of player he is and how to use his skills. I mean, he's a perfect 15-for-15 stealing in the majors now, and it seems like his, uh, you know, he's kind of tailoring his game and getting back to doing a, making more contact and trying to let his legs do the work. I, I see a the signs of an early spike in his ground ball rate, uh, which is now up to 47% after last year was just 38. So he's hitting the ball on the ground more, which again uses the legs. And if he takes some more pitches, then, uh, you know, which we haven't seen yet. He hasn't, he actually hasn't drawn a walk since getting recalled, but when he's, uh, but, but he's went to put, put the ball in play more, at least that helps. But if he could find some on base percentage to go with the, flattened swing and the elite speed you know, there, uh, there there's a potential real fantasy asset here and finally ryan didn't just look at the batters he also looked at the pitchers and i see the same pattern that we're talking about here with a couple of guys who've actually been pretty good this year uh, casey mize a 351 ERA, 113 whip, not that many strikeouts. And Ian Anderson, uh, roughly the same, a little higher whip. But both of these guys had a chance last year. 
30 innings each or so. Anderson looked terrific, in fact, a 195 ERA. But there are guys on the list, most of the rest of them, in fact, who have really struggled. And the one guy that uh, Ryan pointed to in the American League is Spencer Howard, who's just struggled and struggled in both leagues. Yeah, he's really gotten knocked around. And he, you know, my co-general manager, Brent Hershey, is a Phillies observer and was a big, um, big Howard fan. Big fan of Howard. Let me rephrase that. He was a big fan of Howard's talent and a much less big fan of how the Phillies were handling him. And, you know, Brian in this article posted a video that Brent had originally tweeted out uh, shortly after the trade to Texas, where Howard had some veiled language about how he disagreed with how the Phillies were handling him, both in terms of moving him up and down from the majors to the minors and the bullpen to the rotation, as well as some pitch mechanical stuff. So as bad as Howard has been this year, and as much as it's been sort of a lost year for him, I think what we can say is that he's accomplished shaking off that rust that we talked about. And I'll be very curious to see what happens with a fresh start in a new organization and a full spring training next year what the Rangers can do as far as getting him back to a plan on the mound in terms of pitch mix, in terms of how he attacks hitters and how they use him to make him more successful. Cause this was a, you know, a premium prospect that is, you know, just lost his way. And we've seen, we've seen this pattern before that have, and eventually they get straightened out in a new work. I'm reminded of, uh, Lucas Giolito and how he got lost in the in the Nats organization through similar like win now win later kind of pressures yo yo yoing him up and down all the time but you know the White Sox acquired him and eventually straightened him out I you know I'm not saying that's the likely outcome for Howard here but I think it's it's still the ceiling. He's a nine C prospect in the organizational ratings at BaseballHQ.com. Nine, I think, is just sort of like Hall of Fame caliber, and C means a pretty decent chance of getting to that ceiling. And even if he doesn't, you you got to like a nine E, even you know, because it still sure. implies that there's a, a lot of opportunity here. Now the devil's advocate or the naysayer will look at Spencer Howard's year this year and 572 ERA in Philadelphia was pretty bad with a almost 150 whip and then he moves to Texas and if anything it got worse uh, 771 ERA his FIP went up his XERA went up and his whip didn't didn't uh, do much in the way of good stuff either but the the angel on your shoulder might look at it and go, yeah, but it's only nine innings. And the kid's just recovering from this Phillies experience and has all of the other things that we talked about. There's a case to be made, I think, Ray, when you see a guy who was a 9C prospect and struggles a little bit, not to throw him overboard, although maybe Mark Capel is the uh, is the case that says maybe you should. I, I don't know, but I think um, Spencer Howard's going to be on my radar next year. Yeah, I I I will be one who puts zero stock in the numbers from this year. As you say, there's just absolutely nothing redeeming to be pulled out of those numbers. But if you give him a mulligan on it and, you know, stick to that 9C pedigree, to your point, there's still the risk that he's Mark Capel, but, you know, there's the upside that he turned, he emerges like a Giolito and becomes, uh, you know, that nine rating, I think, says, you know, top of the rotation, number one, number two starter. That's still you know, the potential payoff. I think the lumps he's taken this year certainly increased the risk, but in my mind, they haven't changed the ceiling. 
And the comp to Giolito rings with me as well because I remember in the aftermath of his sensational recovery in Chicago, he talked a lot about getting his head in the right space. And these guys are young, you know, and and they've succeeded at virtually every level of baseball they've ever participated in. And then they get to the biggest level and it's hard. And they sometimes have trouble coping with their lack of success and how come it isn't all of a sudden isn't working? Maybe I'm not meant to be here. All of these kind of negative thoughts that got into Giolito's head and he talked about consulting with psychotherapists and getting all of that part of his game organized. And I don't know that much about Spencer Howard, but if he's willing to go on the record in a televised interview and talk about the way he was handled rather than how hard it is to pitch to Juan Soto uh, and how hard it is to slip a, a curveball past these kind of hitters. I think that maybe there's an element of that there, and I'll be really curious to see if just a little more added maturity and a little more added stability in Texas, where heaven knows they need pitching, so he's likely to, to pitch and they're likely to st- hang with him a little bit, could really pay benefits for this young man who is, as we said, a very, very highly rated prospect. Yeah, that's not to say, you know, I don't want to go too far with this and say that the Nationals with Giolito or the Phillies with Howard were, you know, just absolute idiots or anything. There's this central tension that they're dealing with where the Nationals back then and the Phillies now are very much in a win-now mode. And we're trying to find a role for, you know, in the most recent case, Howard to contribute to them, find a way that they could use him. They were, you know, obviously a pitching poor team and I think they wanted them to start, but you know, coming off the lost minor league season with innings caps and that sort of thing, that wasn't really feasible. They tried him in a relief role. That didn't really work out. You know, then when, as, as we were saying earlier in the show, when you go to a relief role, now you have arsenal changes and that sort of thing. And, you know, Howard was up and down from the minors several times. And I think, to your point, he's just a kid. And I, it's not at all hard to imagine that between AAA shuttle the role changes, the pitch mix changes, what they're asking him to do being different virtually every day, the kid's head just had to be spinning. And I, I think the best thing the Rangers could do for him is have him come in next year and say, look, you're a starting pitcher. These are the pitches you're going to throw. You're going to go to AAA for a couple of months and throw them and get stretched out and log some innings. And if that goes well, we'll see what your next step is. But, you know, you can stop wondering what your role is. You can stop wonder, wondering what city you're going to be in. You're going to be in Round Rock. You're going to be in whatever their AAA allocation is. Here's your pitch mix. Here's your coach. Go be you. You know, and that's, you know, if you're a 22-year-old kid or whatever Howard is, how can a reaction be anything but, oh, thank God. <laughs> Exactly right. He's 24, but uh, as we mentioned earlier, because of the missing year, he's functionally 22 probably because yep. he, he's missed all this time. So Spencer Howard, a guy I think to put on your uh, watch list uh, at the very least. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out, and we'll talk to you again uh, next week. Sounds good, PD. Always look forward to it. Ray Murphy's a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, our HQ commentaries. Alex Becky's frequent flyer and my extra innings are coming up. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Matt Dodge forecasts the five teams in the American League Central, looking ahead to 2022 and such potential stars as Spencer Torkelson in Detroit, M.J. Melendez and Bobby Witt in Kansas City, and Jose Miranda in Minnesota. 
In the Arsenal Report, analyst Tanner Smith's last column of 2021 looks at the pitch mixes of Logan Webb in San Francisco and the rebounding Blake Snell in San Diego. And in our sister podcast, The Eyes Have It, Brent Hershey and Chris Blessing break down guys who are giving up on switch hitting, some struggling prospects, and catchers with power, as well as scouting reports on Royals catching prospect MJ Melendez, Rangers third base prospect Josh Jung, and San Francisco outfield prospect Elio Ramos. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's the fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs always updated, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So add it all up. There's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool even at this late date and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Atlanta right-handed starter Spencer Strider is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He was drafted in 2020 and has already made great strides toward the majors. In fact, 22-year-old Atlanta Braves right-handed starting pitcher, Spencer Strider, has struck out almost 40%, yes, 40% of the batters he's faced in 2021 through three levels of the minors. To put that in perspective, despite being promoted to AA Mississippi at the end of June, June 22nd to be exact, Strider currently leads the AA South League with 82 strikeouts in only 12 games. Wow! Once again, to put that in perspective, the next three pitchers of the AA South's top five for strikeouts have made 22, 22, and 32 appearances at AA respectively. In other words, the rest of the pitchers have made almost twice as many or almost three times as many appearances as Strider, but Strider currently leads the league in strikeouts. Incredible! Even so, the hard-throwing Strider might represent somewhat of an injury risk after missing all of 2019 following Tommy John surgery before being drafted in the fourth round by the Braves in 2020. That's why 22-year-old Atlanta Braves right-handed starter, Spencer Strider, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league and especially in Dynasty Leagues. Just be sure to watch out for the Strider Slider. <laughs> After winning Tennessee's Mr. Baseball Award as a senior in high school, and despite being drafted by Cleveland, reportedly his grandmother's favorite team, in the 35th round in 2017, Strider established himself at Clemson University, where he was a three-time ACC Academic Honor Roll member. 
More importantly, Strider dominated with a 12.35 strikeouts per nine rate that ranked fourth best in Clemson history. Therefore, it's perhaps not surprising that Strider has established a dominance rate of 14.61 strikeouts per nine through three levels of the minors in 2021. Remember, it's only a small sample size, 19 total appearances. However, a 14.61 strikeouts per nine rate is well above the nine strikeouts per nine benchmark that we use at BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. Plus, as we pointed out earlier, Strider's strikeout rate of almost 40% is exceptional at any level. Of course, he's not expected to make a fantasy impact in 2021, but at this pace, 22-year-old Atlanta Braves right-handed starter, Spencer Strider, the Strider slider, might only be a few steps away from his Major League debut as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about a brainstorm I had about managing my AL-only pitching staff. I had this brainstorm last Sunday while I was scouring the free agent pool in my Tout Wars American League-only league. Let me set this up. After an awful first couple of months, I was in 10th place, 45.5 points, 2.5 points out of 11th, and 14.5 points short of a 60-point requirement that lets me keep all my fab to start next season. I kept grinding all year, and after Wednesday's games, I was 6th with 66 points, just a point out of 4th. And I was looking at how I might take a run at a point in ERA and whip by grabbing up Lima pitchers and dumping higher ratio guys. A big part of grinding is simply doing the math, especially when you're calculating the potential gains and losses in the ratio categories. My ERA, as I started looking, was 414. That was sixth place in the category, good for seven points. I was .08 behind Howard Bender if I wanted to get that eighth point, but I was only .04 in front of Larry Schechter lurking behind me. In whip, I was fifth, good for eight points, .14 behind Larry, and .13 ahead of Rob Lebowitz behind me. I amassed a good list of Lima-style guys, including Shane Bieber, who was dropped earlier this year, but I thought might come back for a couple of starts at the end, and even though I don't need starts or strikeouts, he could give me some excellent ratios in a goodly number of innings. I also looked at guys like Tyler Duffy, David Robertson, talked about him with Ray, Joe Smith in Seattle, Nick Whitgren, and Tim Meza in Toronto is having a terrific year. I actually ended up getting Bieber, so I'll DL him this week and grab one of those others. But before I clicked the submit button, I had this thought, and this isn't the brainstorm, that comes later. Since I have far fewer innings than all the guys I'm near in those categories, I'm at higher risk of a blow-up really scrooching my ratios. I did the math. I imagine two teams with four ERAs and 125 whips. I'll give you the first team 1,000 innings, and mine has 700 innings. Both teams have relievers who throw in one night a third of an inning each, giving up two earned runs apiece and combining for five base runners. Your 1,000-inning team's ERA goes up from 4 to 4.033. That's a pretty significant jump. My 700-inning team, however, goes all the way up to 4.048. That's a .015 difference, and that's a third of the gap from me to Larry chasing me. 
In whip, your team's whip increases by 0.0042, mine by 0.0059, a difference for me to the bad of 0.0017. That's when I had this brainstorm. What if I just dropped all my pitchers and replaced them with injured guys who are out for the year? I would lock my ratios in place, which would protect my downside, and I could still hope to get a point or two in the other categories, plus there's a chance that the guys I'm chasing in ERA and ratio might work back to me if they had some bad outings. Unfortunately, when I assessed the strategy, I also realized that I have a tenuous one-save lead, which would also be at risk if I just dumped all my relievers. And besides, my relievers are all pretty low-risk guys. Josh Stomont, Yimmy Garcia, guys like that. Good skills. And they might even chip in a save here and there to help me maintain my lead in that very tight category. So, to make a long story short, and I know it's too late for that, I didn't do it. And on Wednesday night, Josh Stoman and Yimmy Garcia each threw a third of an inning, each gave up two earned runs, and they combined for five base runners. For the night, if you're keeping score at home, a 54 ERA and a 750 whip. Thanks a lot, fellas. Interestingly, both of them got holds for these awful efforts, which makes me think that counting holds might actually be worse than counting saves. For the season, my ERA went up by .046 and my whip by .0058. I don't actually think this is going to make a huge difference in the scheme of things, but I also think the dump em all stretch run pitching strategy has a place in our fantasy toolbox if we're in tight ERA and whip situations, especially if the worry is falling backwards and costing points. Obviously, you have to be in a league that doesn't have minimum innings pitched, since the gradations are going to be pretty fine if everyone has a thousand innings at this point or whatever. Of course, I could be mistaken. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 43 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you then, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.